man woke up with a jolt one morning and off, off to work, and as he drove off to work, he was late for an appointment. And uh, he was worried about this appointment. He'd been planning for it for a long while, but his alarm clock hadn't gone off, so he was very late. Jumped into his car, shot off down the road, and as he was going off down the road, he saw the traffic lights ahead turning to red, and he decided that he would put his foot down and get across before they actually turned to red. Unfortunately, in front of him was a woman in another car. And she put her foot on the brake and brought it to a standstill at the traffic lights. Believe it or not, some people do that <laughs> when, the traffic, when the lights are turning red. He was hopping mad and he started shouting at her from the privacy of his car, pounding the steering wheel, waving his arms and shouting. And his mini road rage was only stopped when a tap on the window caused him to turn and look into the face of a police officer who'd seen this step, of, uh, this act of road rage. He asked him to call it, pull his car over to the side and um, step out of the car. He uh, put handcuffs on him, put him in the squad car, and took him off to the police station where he emptied his pockets and he um, was put in a police cell to cool down a bit. About two hours later, the police officer returned. He said, excuse me, sir, would you like to come back to the desk and collect your personal effects? I'm afraid that there's been a terrible mistake, and I apologize. He said, actually, what happened was, when I pulled up behind you and saw you shouting and waving your arms in rage and thumping the steering wheel at that woman, he said, um, I was wondering what to do when I noticed on the back of the car, on the back windscreen, on the left-hand side, there was an invitation to spring harvest. And on the other side, he said, I noticed there was an invitation to the Alpha course. And in the middle, you've got a sticker there that says, I'm going to heaven, follow me. Then I noticed on the back bumper, there was a chrome fish-shaped thing. And he said, I'm afraid I just assumed the car had been stolen. <laughs> now, whether that's true or not, that story, that man, somehow, before he got arrested and went to the police station, somehow, that man had forgotten his identity, who he was. And he'd allowed to slip the way he should have been living as a believer. And it's interesting, when we ask ourselves, who are you, the sort of answers that we might get. If I was to ask you today, who are you? Maybe we went out for a cup of coffee somewhere, and over coffee I said, who are you? You might have replied, well, I'm a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, or something like that, whatever your particular job was. And I would reply to you, um, Excuse me, but that's not who you are. That's what you do. I asked, who are you? If you might then think, well, perhaps he's asking a theological question. And you might say, well, I'm a charismatic. I'm a Calvinist. I'm a Baptist. I'm an Anglican. I'm a Christian brethren person. And I would say, no, 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 no. no you've got it wrong. That's not who you are. That's the church you go to. 
the church of which you're a part. I asked who you are. In fact, the answer is that we are often shaped in the way we think and the way we act by things that people have said to us and the things that form part of our background. If you're brought up with somebody telling you constantly, you're so stupid, you're so stupid, you're so stupid, don't be too surprised if you go out feeling that you're stupid. And it will have a permanent impact upon your life. On the other hand, you might grow up with somebody telling you you're wonderful all the time and you're, you're great and you're well, almost perfect. Well, that's going to shape the way you think too and you think that the world will owe you a living if you're brought up just like that. Our sense of identity, who we are, is very, very important. Not only for the present, but for the future. Uh, I'm just reminded, by the way, of a story which I think I may have said here before, but the story of Maggie Thatcher when she went to an old people's home in the early days of her time. And uh, she went, went to this old people's home and electioneering. And there was this little old lady sitting in the corner. And she was sitting there quietly by herself and took no part in anything that was said. And after it was all over, she went over to this, Maggie Thatcher went over to speak to her. And she said to this old lady in the corner, she said, sitting in her wheelchair, she said, excuse me, she said, do you know who I am? And the lady said, no, but if you'd like to speak to that lady over there, she'll help you with difficult questions like that. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you? So this morning I'm asking you that question, who are you? Who are you? And it's almost uh, the question that forms the background of what happened when Jesus went down one day onto the beach and walking along the beach and he called his disciples and we read the story in, Luke, in Matthew chapter 4. If you want to follow it, it's in Matthew chapter 4, and we're reading from verse 18. If you want a church Bible, Phil will bring one to you. It's on page 968 in the church Bibles. 968. Matthew 4, verse 18. And it starts, it says this, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus first met these disciples, or when he started his dealings with these disciples, as in this particular story, he starts with their identity, who they were. It's a a very important thing, this whole question of who am I and what is my identity. Uh, I mean, think of walking down the street in Capernaum, and you might come across Andrew or somebody like that, and you were to ask Andrew, um, who are you? He would probably say, well, I'm a fisherman. 
But Jesus was about to change all that because he came to him and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. By the way, do you think of that as a promotion? From being a fisherman to being a fisher of men. I do, and I'm sure Jesus did. And in this, the identity of Christian people is tied up. Christian people, above all things, are followers of Jesus Christ. Our identity is a follower of Jesus Christ. In our conversation, if you'd said, well, uh, thank you very much for asking me, but I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, when I'd asked you who you were, you'd have been absolutely spot on, because that's what you are if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important because, you know, in the Bible, there's all sorts of things that Jesus had to say. Some of them are quite formulaic, and we get them all mixed up. For example, on one occasion, it says in the, well, the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We mix it up. We put it the other way around in our thinking. We say, well, for me to live, <clears throat> to, me, to me to die is Christ, and to live is gain. But Jesus, Paul said the other way around completely. And what Paul, uh, Jesus was saying to these disciples was, if you come to me and follow me, I will make you what you should be. I will make you what you should be. And we are told immediately, Matthew tells us that the disciples immediately left their nets and follow him. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus had come along and I was one of those on the beach and Jesus had come along and said, follow me, I think I might have had a question or two, don't you? Don't you think you might have said, well, follow you where? Or follow you to do what? Or if we thought more constructively and thought, well, it's going to be a, 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 a lifetime thing, we might have said, well, is there a pension involved? Or something like that. What's the salary if I follow you? Things like that. We'd have had all sorts of things like that that we would want to ask. Um, but when Jesus came along and said to these disciples, follow me, the amazing thing is, immediately they left their nets and followed him. I, I, I don't understand that really, do you? Other than this, their immediate response was to this person, this rabbi, this Jesus who was walking down the beach, and something about Jesus was so compelling. Something drew a response from them. It was so compelling that they left their nets and followed him immediately. It's extraordinary the way it happens. We read it and we hardly take it in, uh, but it really is extraordinary. I mean, we sometimes think of Jesus in the way sometimes Sunday school children think of Jesus, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But Jesus wasn't like that at all. And these disciples certainly were not like that. You might think of Jesus as smart, in a nice robe, and a nicely trimmed beard, and nice sandals, and smile on his face, and blue eyes, how he's often portrayed in stories and in pictures and so on. Gentle Jesus, meek, tender, merciful, gracious. By the way, he is all those things, and we should thank God that he is all those things. But if that's all you think about Jesus, then you might end up saying, well, he's all those things, but I don't really want to play football with him on a Saturday morning. Not too interested in spending time on the golf course with him. But actually, Jesus was a very tough person. There was something attractive about him to these tough fishermen. 
I mean, these fishermen people, think of them for a minute. These fishermen people, they were tough men. They had bulging biceps with tattoos down their arms. You know, that sort of thing. They'd be fishing all night and they'd have, you know, they'd come out from the boat and wander up to Mac the Nice Cafe. And they'd stub their cigarettes out on the post as they went in and sat down and they'd spend their time talking about the Romans and politics and things like that, uh, that were taking the occupational forces and so on. You know, that was the sort of people. These were not gentle little men who hadn't got much else to do except sit at home and sip cups of tea. These were tough men, hard men. If they'd been around today, we'd have said, well, these are hard-drinking types. Maybe they were then, who knows. But that's the sort of people they are. And uh, yet, when Jesus came along, he said to them, follow me, and they left their job immediately and followed him. There's something very, very compelling about Jesus. And when you actually see Jesus for who he is, you will find that he draws something out of you. Not just as you see him as a Sunday school sort of caricature of Jesus, but who he really is. When you read the story, when you understand the story, there's something very, very compelling about him. And then there's Matthew. He wasn't a fisherman. He was a tax collector. And he had his tax collector's booth. And he sat behind a table. But he was the sort of person that would have you know, turned a buck as quickly as anything. You owed 50 denarii in taxes, he would charge you 60 denarii and pocket 10 of them. He'd have screwed his grandmother if he had the chance. He was that sort of person. Matthew, the tax collectors were, that's why they were so hated. And Jesus walked by his booth and said, Matthew, follow me. And he left his booth and followed him. Or then there's um, Simon, the zealot. (laughs) He's called that because he's um, a member of the resistance, a member of the underground. And he was a fighter. He probably got a stack of Kalashnikovs in his garage. You know, he was that sort of person. He would be a terrorist today. He would be called a terrorist today. He was a terrorist of those days, looking for any opportunity to knock off a Roman or two for occupying their country. That was the sort of person that Simon the Zealot was. If he was around today, he would have probably been a suicide bomber. That's the sort of person he was. And Jesus came to Simon the Zealot and said, Simon, follow me. Left it, followed Jesus. Something very, very compelling about Jesus when he calls us to follow him. Now, I'm struck by the fact that when Peter was called here on the beach, The very first thing Jesus said to Peter is, Peter, follow me. That's the start of Jesus' dealings with Peter. Peter, follow me. And the very last thing Jesus said to Peter, right at the end of the Gospels, was, Peter, follow me. The bookends on either end of Peter's life, as far as Jesus was concerned, were, Peter, you must follow me. Now, I'm aware, as you are no doubt, that this whole idea of identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus doesn't go down too well today because it's not a culturally acceptable thing to be a follower like that. Everybody wants to be a leader these days. I mean, I mean, uh, you go to Waterstones in Eastgate Street or something like that, and uh, these bookshops, and look at the best-selling lists, the non-fiction best-sellings. Half the books will be on leadership, how to be a leader, 12 steps to better leadership, and things like that developing your leadership potential, all these steps about 
leadership and so on. Followers are just the drones who buzz around and get things done. Not very attractive. But you see, we live in an upside-down world. And in the kingdom of Jesus, it is the followers who are the celebrated ones. Followers. Uh, I expect, like me, from time to time, you've seen on television um, people who have been Christian leaders, tele-evangelists or something like that, who have slipped up and fallen morally, financially, or whatever way it is, and have caused great stir and great disaster by so doing. But I've noticed something about those people. I've never seen a leader who has failed in this way who forgot how to lead. It was that he forgot how to follow. That's the thing. Because following is what it means to be in the kingdom of Jesus. Being a follower of his. And that was the problem with these people. They'd just forgotten how to follow. And sometimes we get called to do this and called to do that and called to do the other and I could list things that I've been called to and you, you have to. And you feel tempted to do it but at the end of the day you say, no, that's not right for me because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So let me ask the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? When Jesus came on the beach and said to Peter and John and Andrew and the others, follow me, what did it mean to follow him? Now, there are some clues in the text, in the actual words that are used here in Matthew's Gospel and in the other Gospels. Let me give you some of, some of them. First of all, what was the meaning as far as the disciples themselves were concerned when Jesus said, follow me? Now, there is a cultural aspect of this, and there is a linguistic aspect of this. And I want to just spend a minute to talk about those things. First of all, as far as culture is concerned, when Jesus came down and walked along the beach and said to Peter and Andrew and James and John, follow me, they would know immediately what Jesus was talking about. That's why they didn't ask the question, what's the salary? Didn't ask the question, how long for? Will I be able to go home and say goodbye to my friends or anything like that? They, because they knew immediately what Jesus was on about. Because you see, in education in those days, Children started in their education. The first school they went to was the Bet Sefa. That's the primary education. And they went there from about six years old till 12. It varied slightly over the years, and it varied slightly from place to place. But six to 12 years old was Bet Sefa. It's the start of formal education. Before that, dad had the responsibility of educating their children. And he would teach them morning and night. The Deuteronomy chapter six, uh, chapter 11, verse 19, talks about when you rise up and when you lie down, then acknowledge God. And there's the verses there in Deuteronomy that they would recite. And this is the part of the education. And the father would start with that and would begin the education. But then at age six, they would go to the Bet Sefer. That's the first start of education, down at the synagogue. And there they would start... Betsifa means house of the book. And the teaching was based entirely on the Torah, the first part of the Old Testament. And they would be taught it. They would be taught to read using it. They'd be taught to write using it. They would memorize great chunks of it, even at that young age. And they would rock backwards and forwards to help them in their memorizing. And you've seen this on television in 
Jewish schools, in Islamic schools as well, learning great chunks. In the case of Muslims, they learn the Quran, of course, but in the case of the Jews, it was the Torah, the first part of the Old Testament. And the rabbi would teach them there at the beginning. Here is a modern day, Betsifa. That was the first phase. And that part of education finished when they reached the age of 12 or sometimes 13 and their bar mitzvah took place and their bar mitzvah was the welcome into the adult world. That's what it was. When they started, the first thing the rabbi did would give them a slate. And on the slate, on the corner of the slate, he would put a blob of honey. Their first lesson. And their first lesson was to stick their finger in the honey and taste it and see how sweet it was. And they would learn Psalm 19, verse 10, that God, the word of God is sweeter than honey. And so all the education was based on it. And that's how they started, the Bet Sifa. And then came the next stage, and that's the Bet Midrash. And that was from age 13 to about age 15. And only the very best, not many, would go on to that level. Most people finished at 12. Um, only the very best would enter that education because this stage was far more academic. Until that time, it would be this memorizing, learning God's word, learning to read and write from God's word. But now the Bet Midrash, the teaching of the rabbis over the centuries, they would begin to learn that too. And it included formal study until at the end of it they were expected to be able to recite the whole of the Torah. And only a handful would be in, uh, included in that. The disciples didn't get that far. Because when you finished Bet Sefa, when you'd finished your education, if you weren't one of the handful that went on to Bet Midrash, you, the next step was for you to go back home and take up the family trade. And they were fishermen. At least many of them were fishermen. But now Bet Midrash... It was more than that. And then the third stage, there's the Bet Midrash. And then the third stage of education was the Bet Talmud. Sometimes these were, titles were mixed in various centers. And this took place from about 16 to about 30 years old. And only a handful did this. And the only people who did, they were the, only the very best of the very best were selected for this part of education. And what happened was, if you wanted to go on to this further education, you would speak to a rabbi that you highly regarded and say to him, may I be one of your followers? May I be a follower of you? And the rabbi would select from all those who asked, and there wouldn't be many, but he would select from just two or three people who would become his followers. Or the word he used was his Talmidim, his group of followers. And they would begin to follow him. And their responsibility in following him was to become exactly, exactly like the rabbi. And they left home, they moved in with the rabbi, they would move on to his... Uh, his um, home area and they would copy everything he did. They would watch how he dressed and they would dress the same way. They would watch how he cooked and they would cook the same way. They would listen to the way he spoke and they would speak the same way. They listened to how he answered people's questions and they would 
answer the questions the same way. In fact, it went into such detail, pardon me for being rude, they would watch him going to the toilet so that they could go to the toilet in exactly the same way. When he came out of the toilet, he would offer a prayer of thanksgiving, and they would offer the same prayer of thanksgiving, etc., etc. Everything they wanted to copy him. And it happens down till today as they copy what the rabbi is doing. They wanted to become exactly like the rabbi, the person of their choice. And it was the whole of their delight to be a follower of the rabbi. And it was the passion, the dream of these young men. But only three or four, a handful, would ever get that far to be one of those people. They would hang on every word he said and do everything that he he did. After all, he was the one who was the visible representation of the word of God to the people. The rabbi, they thought that. So they wanted to copy him and be exactly like him. It would be their highest privilege. Actually, when a rabbi came to town and he had his followers with him, you could easily tell which rabbi they were following because they just looked like him and acted like him and dressed like him and spoke like him and all their arguments were the same as his and his, the, the intonation in his, their, their language was the same as his because they wanted to be exactly like the rabbi that they were following. Isn't it interesting that um, when Jesus calls us, he calls us to follow to be like him. Only the most brilliant could do that in those days. But today, these people were down on the beach. And uh, down onto the beach came this young rabbi and came up to these disciples and said, follow me. They knew exactly what he meant. And they left everything to follow him. So it was the Torah that they learned and then they followed the rabbi, what he said and what he did. By the way, this is the current wall. And if you go down to the Wailing Wall today, you can sometimes see the rabbi, a rabbi there. In fact, um, somebody I know was saying that he was down there and saw one of these elderly rabbis very bent over with a walking stick hobbling along dressed in his clothes, and his, his dark clothes and so on. And behind him were five Talmidim, all young men, in their early early 20s, but they were all bent over with a walking stick, all walking down the road exactly like him. That was their greatest desire. And by the way, if you think this is a bit odd, having Batman at the Wailing Wall, this is part of Purim. And in Purim, they all dress up in fancy dress. And this is one of those people that are dressed up as Batman on this particular occasion at the Wailing Wall. Spider-Man, I beg your pardon, not (laughs) Spider-Man. I was just sitting next to Nahum, and he's dressed as a, with a Batman uh, T-shirt on today. No, Spider-Man, you're right. Spider-Man. Good job you know these things. Eh? Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, I might have got that. That would have been a tragedy. But the cultural thing of following Jesus is so important. And this young rabbi comes down onto the beach and says, follow me. Follow me. This creator of the universe walked onto the beach of their lives 
and gave him the unspeakable privilege of leaving everything to follow him, to hear what he says and take note of everything he said, to hear, see what he did and to copy the way he did it, to see how he related to people and seek to be obedient and like that, uh, the same as that. But I said there was also a language thing here, a language thing. It wasn't only a cultural thing when Jesus said, follow me. There's a linguistic thing. The linguistic thing is that the word follow me, follow there, has a particular meaning. And it means to be found in the road with him, to be on the path with him. In fact, it means immediately behind him, not beside him or in front of him, but immediately behind him, following him. And it's as if Jesus is cutting a new pathway through the way people think and the way people act with his machete, cutting his way through, like going through the forest. And every so often he looks over his shoulder and right behind him are those who are following him, following him, watching what he says, listening to the things he does. When Jesus stood on one occasion and said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's what he was saying. I am the way, I am the path, follow me. Right behind me, right with me. You know, and when Jesus did that, of course, more than more often than not, he was countercultural. He was going against society. In fact, most of the things Jesus said of, significant, of, of great significance were, were things that were countercultural. You know, he often preceded them by saying, You have heard it said, but I say unto you, You have heard it said that you should love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despise you. For, so that you will be blessed by your Father in heaven. Countercultural. And often when Jesus spoke, it was like that. He said, when somebody strikes you on the cheek, don't hit him back, but turn the other cheek and say, how about this one? Or when somebody steals your coat, don't say, I want that back. Say, I've got another one here. Would you like a second one? Or when somebody says to you, would you walk and carry my things for me? I'm fed up with it. You can carry my, my, my goods. Offer to walk two miles instead of one mile that he was demanding. And, uh, of course, Jesus was the, the headline person of the day. Everywhere people went, everywhere he went, people were, were taking note of what he said, and he would have been in the headlines of the... the, the uh, Newspapers, I think just the last few days there's been one or two in the headlines um, of papers today. But Jesus was the sort of person like that. At one occasion he went to a town, by the way, and it, it, it's interesting. If you had had an opportunity to speak to Jesus and ask him a question, I wonder what you'd ask. Well, one man came to Jesus in Luke chapter 12, and in the middle of the crowd, this man calls out, and he had only one chance to speak to Jesus. And guess what he asked for? Master, um, will you tell my brother to divide the inheritance between us? <laughs> Hardly the best thing to ask Jesus at that particular time. But that's what he said. I mean, I think I would want to say something that was quite profound if I was asking a question. But no, not this man. Just tell, this, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And Jesus had something to say. And he took the opportunity to be, be, beware of greed. Beware of wanting more. Or the rich fool had barns full 
at the harvest time. He wanted to build more. I mean, I think probably he'd had enough if his barns were already full. But he just wanted to pull them down and make four. And Jesus said to him, you're a fool. You're a fool. Not because you're rich, but because you're poor towards God. You need to be rich towards God. Jesus was so countercultural. And when he said to the disciples and said to his followers, follow me, what he was saying is you need to live in this way. Cut your way through the way the world thinks and follow a new pathway that I'm calling you to follow. And it's so important that we understand that. To be in the way with him. But let me finish by asking this question. What then is the meaning for us? If that was the meaning for those days, what does this actually mean for us today? Well, here it is. It means that today Jesus is calling us to obedience, obedience. He's calling us to obey him. Did you notice, I did stress it earlier, when Jesus called his disciples, on Peter and James, uh, Peter and uh, Andrew, he, he says, at once they left their nets and followed him. James and John a bit later, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And obedience to the Lord Jesus demands at once obedience to him. So today, what does that mean for you? What's your step of obedience you need to take today? What's the step of obedience that I need to take today? What is he calling me to do? Well, it might be a step of commitment. A step of commitment. You've known about the gospel of Jesus Christ for a long while, and you've even thought it was good even thought it was right and proper, but somehow or another, you've not got round to doing anything about it. Today, he says, follow me. And your response in obedience might be a step of commitment to say, Lord Jesus, I just want to follow you. And I give my life to you that I might be your follower, your Talmudin, your disciple, your follower. Here I am, Lord Jesus. I want to take that step of commitment. For others, it might be, for example, a step of baptism. Actually, here at Abbey, we're planning a baptismal service. Some have asked for baptism, and we're so pleased about that. And we want to just invite you, if you've not taken that step of obedience in baptism, now is the time to say so. So would you say to one of the the, uh, elders here, I want to be obedient to the Lord Jesus. I want to be baptized. I think it's the right time for me to be baptized in obedience to him. Because the scripture tells us that we should not only believe, but we should be baptized. And baptism is a step of obedience. We're called to obey him as believers and be obedient to him. So if you've not taken that step, now's the time to talk it over or to say yes. If you have questions, you can ask one of us as elders. And we'll be pleased to share them with you. But if you've not been baptized, is, is Jesus saying to you, baptism is your step of obedience. Baptism is your mark of follow me, following him. So it might be a step of saying yes to baptism. And we'll be arranging some baptismal classes and a baptismal service a little bit later to join others who have already said that they would like to be baptized in obedience to Jesus. And by the way, please pray about that. Thirdly, it might be something that you need to put right with somebody else. Something's gone wrong and 
cause difficulties. Today is the day to phone them up, to ring them up, to send an email, to call on them, or to visit them here, or speak to them face to face, whatever it might be, to put it right. I don't know what it is that Jesus is calling you to, but he calls us to be obedient to him when he says, follow me. So today is a day of response, and we're called to be his followers. And when we do, it means everything. We aim to be like him, to follow him, to hear what he says, to act in the way he says. Let me finish by saying this. When Jesus called these disciples, it says, Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. I asked myself, why does it say that? Why doesn't it say at once they followed him? Why does it underline the nets? Well, I suspect it's because the nets simply represent the old life, the old things, the things that would hold them back. And they had to lay them down to follow him. It could be that there's things that you need to lay down. I don't know. Put on one side and say, maybe it wasn't wrong, nothing wrong with the nets. Nothing wrong, but I put it on one side so that I might follow him. And he comes to us today and says, follow me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this simple story when you called your disciples. Help us, we pray, to hear you saying to us today, follow me. I'm going to pause for a minute now while we can each make our own response, our own way to the Lord Jesus. We don't know how to tell him how to respond. Well, the words don't matter. Just speak to him from your heart. Is it a step of commitment you're taking today? You're opening your life to him and receiving him as your Savior and Lord, knowing that he died for you. Tell him. Do you know that today you, you need to respond in baptism because the scripture says that we should believe and be baptized? You're a believer, but you've never been baptized. You need to respond. Is there something that you need to put right with somebody else? Determine before him to put it right. Is there something that you need to lay on one side so that you can be his follower? Before him, lay it on one side. O oh Lord, give me an undivided heart to follow you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing that song.